0: Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. I'm so excited because today I'm going to see and meet so many of you coming from so many different countries to the Dreamtopia workshop. I will be spending the next two days with 350 of you, which is just such a treat. And I want to tell you how proud I am, all of you. I'm so proud of all of you for dreaming. Dreaming takes so much courage. Dreaming takes so much vulnerability because all of us have a voice inside that is a critic and there's plenty of voices from outside. And to dream means that there's something inside of you that knows that you feel this hunch, you feel this whisper, you feel this thing directing you towards something. And it takes courage to walk toward that because There's like this fight inside each one of us, this part of us that thinks that we're not enough, this part of us that doesn't know how big we are. And then there's your soul that knows, that knows that you are capable of extraordinary things, that you are brilliant beyond measure, that you were put here to do exactly what that whisper is directing you toward. And it takes tremendous courage. And I think whenever that anxiety comes up, whenever that fear comes up, maybe Reframe that and look at it like you are at the threshold of something so big, so powerful. So keep dreaming. And then the next thing to remember is you have to do something about it. And you have to tolerate making something that's not perfect. And you have to be willing to step into the unknown. And you have to know, please know that the most precious thing is passion and enthusiasm and Speak your truth. Speak what you know. You'll be amazed at how you having compassion for yourself and you just letting go of shame and sharing whatever it is you have to share and making whatever it is that you want to make. You'll connect. You'll find the places where you can add light. I promise. So, we're going to dive in. I'm interviewing the lovely John Tabas. He's awesome. Um, I've been a fan of his for a while. He's the co founder and CEO of this awesome floral company called Books. Uh, Books is not just an ordinary flower delivery service, in addition to having gorgeous bouquets, they are also really focused on sustainable practices so that they're farmers and florists and the environment can really thrive and flourish. They really care about building direct relationships with their customers, which you don't always get with any company. They've been featured in the New York Times, Oprah Magazine, Time Magazine, and they have a really interesting story about being on Shark Tank, which we're definitely going to get into. John has lots of advice to share, which you can also get on his podcast, which is called Give Him the Biz, where he talks about what it's like being an entrepreneur and getting a startup off the ground. So go ahead and check that out later. Now, without further ado, please welcome the wonderful John Tavis. Hey, John, thanks for being
1: here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: This is awesome. I love when I have somebody on who I've been a fan of and I've been using books for a while. So it's cool to uh, get to hear the whole story of how it started. So why don't you take us back and tell us how this all came to be?
1: Sure. I won't go all the way back to birth, but um, (laughs) I've always had a little bit of sort of an entrepreneurial spirit. And as an adult, that often took the form of more projects than than companies, but there were a lot of those. So I produced an independent film, which I sold and got distributed. I co-wrote and produced a CD. I had three or four different business plans over the years, but never really had like the opportunity to Get one off the ground in a major way, and I, I had spent six years at the Walt Disney Company doing really high-level strategic planning stuff for for Disney brands. And I kind of got the itch to run something. I was I was always in a consultant, essentially. What I produced were PowerPoint decks. And I had some friends who had started companies who had scaled them, and I, I talked to them. And you know, the very frustrating advice they gave me was just like, just start a company, just go do it. And I thought that right, was insane. Right. <laughs> I was like, you can't just start a company. That's not how it works. And they were like, yes, it is. You just got to go do something. And um, I wasn't ready for that. So I took a job at shoe And uh, I got a job there as VP of brand and strategy just to see if I actually liked this world of venture backed startup sort of crazy. Can you change the world? I got into that job. And on like day six, I was like, yes, like this is what I've been waiting for. So I knew and from that job and at a very early part of that job that I, that I, yes, I did want to do something like this. And around the same time that I started there, my co-founder reached out to me. Now, JP and I go way back. We met as freshmen in college at Notre Dame and as sophomores, we started a band and, uh, but he actually grew up in Ecuador on a dairy farm. And then right down the street, his uncle had a rose farm. So he spent mm-hmm. his childhood, his teenage years, living and working on these farms, and he very quickly fell in love with flowers as a farmer. And so he left Notre Dame with a biochemistry degree to become a researcher, eventually got his MBA and went back to Ecuador to run a flower farm. And so JP's running his farm for a couple years, and he loves the product, he loves the people, he loves the land, but there are certain parts of it he doesn't love. Economically, flower farming is very challenging. And so he wanted to find ways to improve the bottom line for the business and have it be more profitable. And -hmm. then at the same time, he and 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 the folks that ran the farm before he was running the farm invested really heavily in people and in the planet. And they did that because they thought it was good for the business and because it was the right thing to do. And he was frustrated because they're doing all these things and then they're selling their flowers into a system that then mixes their flowers in with all the other farms that don't do any of these things. And yet the end customer doesn't know which stems are coming from which farm. The weird thing about flowers is between the farmer and the end consumer, there's five or six other entities. And he was frustrated by that because he's like, hey, look, we're doing amazing things here for the planet, for people, and it's great for our product. And there's no way for me to tell that story to the end customer to have it matter. They don't even know to ask the question." And so right. as I started talking about this, That's I was like, wow, this is fascinating, right? And then there's all these other negative things that happen that he didn't even re- really realize either at the time, which is between a third and 50% of the flowers that go into that supply chain die without ever being sold. You're wasting about half of the product's life in just transporting it from player to player to player. And And I said to him, I was like, wow, so you want me to help you market this thing that you have? And rather than having all these individual entities buy and resell this product, let's, let's do it ourselves. Just use technology and data to do it efficiently. We talked about it for a while, like three or four months, just phone calls and emails and slacks. And we just sort of put a plan together. And, you know, I was still working at shoe dazzle and I went to my boss and said, Hey, you know, I have this friend who is in the flower business. And is it okay if I work on this, you know, nights and weekends on my own time? Ironically, my boss was one of the people that helped scale up ProFlowers to, you know, a half billion dollar company um, 10, wow. 15 years ago. And, and he was like, you shouldn't do this, but if you want to, you can. <laughs> and I was like, well, as long as you're cool, that I'm going to give it a shot. And so, you know, signed some paperwork to make sure that it was cool, which I would recommend to anyone who wants to start a company while having a day job. And uh, I did it, you know, nights and weekends and sort of on my own own time and own resources. And at that time, it was sort of just trying to get a team together. You know, it was like, how do we get anything done? And so I had to get together technology and marketing and creative and finances for the business um, up here. And so we did that and we did it with a group of people. It was like the sort of Island of Misfit toys. We had no funding. I, I, I scraped together $13,000 from my mom, my sister, a couple buddies And, uh, and that was all of our funding, which we, you know, was enough to sort of get an LLC up and running, you know, some hosting for the website. And that was kind of it. There was, that was all we had money for. And we worked on it for, you know, a few months and we got sort of towards the, um, launch date, which was going to be November 6th, 2012. And I spent some time with my wife and talked about, Hey, you know, I would love to take a shot at this at some point, I think. And Mm -hmm. as a family, are we ready to sort of go to a world where, I make $0 essentially and, and, and run this company. And, uh, we, we agreed that we would give it a shot. And so, um, she was working in public education, you know, making it rain. We had a nine month old baby and we had just bought a house in LA. So this is, you know, the the best time to start a company is right at this moment. And, uh, we decided together to take the leap. So I did a little bit of consulting on the side. I did like 10 to 15 hours of consulting a week. And then, you know, we really sort of started driving um, towards this business. And, you know, we got it off the ground in November. We hit our November 6th deadline. And in the first month, we did $8,000 of sales. And it was kind of like, wow, Whoa. like eight grand. Amazing. That's awesome. And it was almost all through word of mouth. And I, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs now. And a lot of them come to me because they have a product and they have a website and they can sell they can sell, and they can mm-hmm. take orders and they always mm-hmm. come to me saying like, well, now I need to raise money to market. And I say, you know, what are your sales? And they're like, oh, you know, $300 a month, $500 a month. And I'm like, okay, that's, a, we haven't yet figured out a product that people want. And, and well, but I need money to market it. No, no, no. if you have a great product and a great, or a great website experience or whatever it is, people are going to talk about it and they're going to tell others and they're going to buy. And so mm-hmm. you don't need money. You need story and hustle. And if you Mm -hmm. have those two things, you can get a consumer business off the ground. And on the hustle side, I I always ask entrepreneurs if their mom had bought yet. And they'll often be like, no, my mom isn't into whatever it is that I'm selling. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's your mom. She should buy because she loves you and she's going to support you or or your best friends or your sisters. And if you aren't hustling to sell those people on your product, then you're not going to hustle enough to sell the company. And so." You know, getting people to realize that we did eight grand in that month, it was all on the back of me emailing, calling, text messaging, Facebook messaging, everyone that I knew and just saying, this is my dream. It's a better product. Here's why it's better. You should try it. And the next month we did 12 and then we did 25 and then we did 40 and then we did $100,000 a month and then it just sort of rolled. Um, wow. And, and all and we did $1.7 million in our first year of of, of the business. With no marketing budget, that was with that $13,000.
0: That's amazing.
1: And, and it was really about just finding the story and then hustling the heck out of it. And what we did to get, find that story was we just tried a lot of, I just tried a lot of positioning statements with people. And then and we were in a meeting once and one of the executives at Deutsch actually said to me, because I was sort of glossing over that my co-founder lives on this, um, this volcano called Cayambe, which is just outside of Quito, Ecuador. And he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That sounds amazing. He's like, what's up <laughs> with the amazing. volcano? <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, the volcano is just where he lives. It's called Kayambe. It's active. It you know, explodes every whatever, 10 years, something like that. And he's like, how is it that you have a business that sources product from an active volcano and we've been talking for two hours and I'm just learning about it? He's like, that's the Good most point. amazing thing is that volcano. I was like, huh, I never really thought of that before. And it is pretty awesome. And so we shifted all of our pitching to be, we dropped ship flowers from an active volcano in South America for $40 flat. And everyone said, no, I want to buy that. That became mm. the lean in that like, oh, wow, this is happening moment. And that's really what started it going. And then, you know, once you have that and you hustle that story, then other people want to tell the story. So we ended up in Daily Candy, which at the time was like the coup de mm. grace of all PR. Yeah. All right. Rest yeah. in peace, Daily Candy. Um, and then we ended up on you know Oprah, in Oprah magazine and, uh, mm. and so the, the, the press train started to roll and then partners came out of nowhere like guilt City and uh, Groupon and the Price is right called us to be a prize and you know that that consumer energy around a story that captures the imagination and makes people feel rather than just trying to get somebody to buy something really shifted things and it, it started like a momentum of new buyers and referral and word of mouth that really drove the business for the first really two or three years before we raised significant capital. And so, you know, we, we kind of rode that, that train and we were sort of off to the races.
0: So, so cool. I want to pull things out here. Um, what happened when you started though, you didn't have that thought, who am I to do this? There's already tons of other flower companies and if you push through that, which obviously you did, what advice do you have for someone who has that self-doubt and they're worried they're going to get eaten up by competition? How would you help them to get through that? Sure.
1: So I think there's a couple of pieces of this. One is about sort of taking the risk and the risk in and of itself. And then the other is sort of like, how do you compete and believe that you can against you know entrenched right. competitors or whatever? So on the second one first on the how do you compete part? I was very convinced based on looking at the existing brands in the market that no one knew brand like I did. You know, I was trained at the Walt Disney yeah. Company for six years to think about selling not a transaction, but selling an emotional connection with a customer. And when I looked at my large entrenched competitors, and I'm not gonna name them specifically, but I think everyone can figure out who they are, I saw companies, not brands. I saw people that took orders but didn't build relationships. And so My confidence was around, here's an approach that is different, both in the supply chain and how we source the product, which enables the brand story, and then in having a brand story at all. And you know, my competitors would dispute it. Oh, we have a brand. And and they do. They have a logo. They have a thing that they stand for. But what they stand for generally is we sell flowers. And what I thought was we can stand for sustainable, responsibly grown, fresh, farm-to-table, the whole sort of kit and caboodle of our brand positioning today in a way that others hadn't or couldn't. And so that Mm -hmm. gave me great confidence that maybe we wouldn't, and maybe we still won't be the largest player in the market, but we could be a big one because we could own that Mm -hmm. space and no one else that had really gone after that space. So that gave me confidence in the execution model. You know, When I talked to my boss who had worked at ProFlowers, he's like, you're never going to out-execute ProFlowers. I said, I don't have right, to, right, I don't right. have to beat them at their game. I'm just going to play a completely different game that they've never played, which is purely about mm-hmm. brand loyalty, emotional connection. Um, and he admitted, mm-hmm. he said, if you can figure out brand in this space, you know, you will have something that is different than the others. So I was confident in the thesis. On the other side, like, how do you get comfortable with the risk or how do you just decide to take the leap and get comfortable that you're not going to get eaten alive and just fail? The answer is you're not the question is can you get comfortable with the risk and the way that i got comfortable with the risk was uh, again in talking to some of my friends who had started companies before was sort of coming to this conclusion that the risk actually isn't very big at all and i i have a a, a podcast called give them the biz like g i v e m the biz and yeah. what we talk about is the reality of what it is to start a company and i have a whole riff on one of the on one of the episodes about this but The fact of the matter is, is over the course of your career, let's say you start when you're making money when you're 21 and you retire at 65 or whatever, right? So let's just say you have 40 years to earn money. If you take in any given chunk of that 40 years, a three-month period, and you make zero, the overall impact to your total earnings over your lifetime is negligible. And so you're giving up, you know, 14 grand for a chance to one, live your dream, Two, potentially make a ton of money. Three, to learn so much more than you would ever learn in working for somebody else. And then, so doing, yeah. you'll actually be more valuable to the market, which means your 100,000 might become 110 later. Um, and, right, and so right. the risk is actually really, really low. Because all you're doing is saying, I'm going to risk three months of of salary. Because by the way, if in three months you have no traction, no progress, no one wants your product, you can't get a team together, you can't build the technology, whatever it is that you're supposed to do in those three months, if you're just not doing it, then it's probably not going to happen and you should probably go get a job. And so what my wife and I agreed on for our personal sort of sanity was three month increments. If by month three, this is happening, let's keep going. If not, Mm -hmm. go get a job. It can become a hobby. Um, and so after three months, we were doing, you know, $40,000 a month in sales, kind of like, hey, there's something here, let's give it another three months, what's our next milestone? And in so doing, we de-risked it significantly, because it wasn't like, there was no chance that I was going to do this for four years and make no money, right? Yep. It was it was contained to that, that milestone-based sort of time frame. And so it, yep. at the end of the day, I didn't feel like it was really that risky. I'm going to give up a couple months of salary to try to do something that is going to make me smarter, better, better at any other job I might get. Um, and and I'll get to scratch the itch at the same time, which was personally fulfilling.
0: But you talked earlier on about how you went to your boss and you said, I was going to be really above board about how I wanted to start something else at the same time. And I think a lot of our listeners are in that boat where they can't quit the job right now, but they do want to build the side hustle. What advice do you have for building a side hustle? What would be the things to work on and prioritize to prove the, the side hustle.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's all going to be defined by what your bandwidth is and sort of just how many hours you can put into it. Right. I mean, like you said, mm-hmm. if you have yeah. kids, you're going to have less time. So I think it's, it's obviously going to be constrained by the amount of resources you can put into it. And I highly recommend finding other like-minded people to share some of that load in the early days like I did. Because um, without that, there's, there's never been enough bandwidth. By getting a bunch of people's you know a few hours a day, I got a decent amount of hours to put against this thing. and so I think getting a team mm-hmm. is paramount, even if it's just a part-time team. I think you know in order to, to determine whether or not you're going to be able to get something off the ground and, and sort of have proof of concept, it really depends on the type of business. The nice thing about this type of business was it was something that we could actually create with very little capital. It was, it's not recommended, it's not common, but it was possible. And right. so thinking about right. the type of business is really important too. Can it be done in a way that is light on capital or light on, on resources or not? And then once you get into trying to prove it, um, I think you have to figure out what is the number one sort of bullet point that I would need to believe to say that this has legs. And for us, that was, you know, just revenue. It was, you know, can we get people to buy this thing? And so on, on day one, we wanted a website that could take orders, um, that we could process those orders and we could deliver the flowers. Um, And so that was Mm -hmm. the metric we focused on. And as that number grew, we felt, you know, increasing confidence that there was at least a portion of the market, we didn't know how big, that cared enough about that. And then, you know, over time, um, sort of expand upon that initial idea.
0: Awesome. There's so much we could go into. And that's why it's so great that you have a podcast. And like he said, his show is called Give Him the Biz. You guys should check it out. One of the things that is the next piece, which I'm really impressed with you, and I don't know if everybody knows this story, but five years ago, you were on Shark Tank and you were rejected by many of those people. Now, a lot of people face rejection and they're done. They are done, especially when they're on national TV, especially when it's Mark Cuban, right? So I actually heard that Mark Cuban said he regretted not taking the deal. Is that true?
1: Yes, there was a 2020 special for the like I don't know hundredth episode or 500th episode uh-huh. or something. It was a big anniversary special, and they had us on there um, as one of the companies. And and Mark sort of in the in the narrative said, "Yeah, that's the one I wish you know that's the one I got that got away from me." I guess
0: that's sweet. Which is
1: pretty nice feather in the cap for for me and Bukes. Um, yes,
0: yes, but but I think this is a really important point. Because I think that the number one reason why people don't do the things that they want to do, whether it's Anthony Michael Hall asking Molly Ringwald out in all those John Hughes movies, or if it's people starting a business is we don't want to get rejected. We don't want to fall on our face. So how did you bounce back from the different rejections, the different disappointments, and how can you help somebody else learn how to deal with that so that they don't give up too soon.
1: Yeah, if we talk about this a decent amount on on GETB as well. There's a couple of pieces to unpack in sort of who should or who should not start a business and, and and be an entrepreneur. And you know, one of the ones that I think is just absolutely required for an entrepreneur is having thick skin and being obstinate and literally never giving up. Yeah. And the Shark Tank rejection was actually kind of easy by the time we got there. Because I had been rejected by over a hundred venture capitalists prior to that, easily.
0: Yes, you should be so easily, proud of that. Right? That's
1: amazing. And, and by the way, since then, hundreds more. I mean, awesome. Um, just keep pouring it on. Yeah, I love you just it. Just sort of, you just have to be so sure that you're right. And if you're not sure that you're right, then you have to get to a thesis or a business or an idea that you can be so sure that you're right about. Uh, because if you're not, mm. you will crumble on it. And if you crumble on it, the whole rest of the thing goes away. And so you have to be obstinate and so sure. And I think part of that is just in hate. Like I am a, I'm a stubborn person. I will dig in. I will insist that I'm right, like as deep as I possibly can until I'm completely proven wrong. And then I'll give up my position. And being an entrepreneur, I think you need that. You have to be so sure that you're right that you can mm, keep driving and keep driving and keep pushing. Um, yeah. and so I went, you know, I went through this, this first round, that I was raising a, a seed round and you know, like I said, re- literally rejected by hundreds of, of investors. So the rejection on Shark Tank hurt, but no more than any of the others. And probably on the margin, a little bit less because it, it, each one just becomes a little bit easier. You're kind of like, oh, well, there's another really smart person who's made a lot of great investments who just doesn't get this and that's okay. And I'm still going to go and make this thing work anyway. And so I think that sort of positioning, is part of it. The other part of it is sort of that that drive and that desire to see it exists in the world to the point where it is probably a little bit delusional. You're sort of self-deluding at some point, um, but that is absolutely required because if you don't believe in the impossible, no one else mm-hmm. will, and then the impossible right. will never happen. And yet, the impossible That's happens right. all the time in startups and companies. You know, hey, I'm going to create a company that you're going to you're going to hit a button and a car is going to magically appear to take you somewhere. And 10 years ago, everyone would be like, you're insane. That's that's impossible. And then the first time you used Uber or Lyft, you were like, oh my God, it's the greatest moment of my life. It's possible. Exactly. And this is what makes Elon Musk so compelling for people is that in the face of literally impossible odds, he's like, sure, that we're going to colonize Mars and we're going to fly people up to the moon and they're going to have like a half hour to dance around, then they're going to come back that afternoon. Isn't that crazy? Like he, and it's yeah. actually yeah. taking steps to make it happen. Will he do it? I don't know. Will someone do it eventually? Probably. Um, but the fact is he believes that that's going to happen. And that's why he can raise all the capital and hire all the people and have a shot at it. Yeah. And if you don't believe in the, the potential of it at the beginning innately, the rest of it's just, you're dead in the water. Um, I think yeah. the other part of it is, is, is as much as you can, you have to try to and it's almost impossible to detach your ego from the success of the company. I have not successfully done this. I am defined by this company. If it fails, I am a failure. That's how I feel every day, which is both good and bad, right? It's good in the sense of it drives me to make sure that it doesn't fail because I feel a lot of pressure that if it fails, then I'm a failure. I know intellectually that's not true. And that even if it did fail at some point, that we've done a lot of good in the world and we've impacted farmers and consumers and we've meant a lot to people and we've you know we've we've built a really great business but it's healthier if you can detach the two um because then the risk is less but if you can detach it too much then you might not have that same drive so i always go back and forth on this topic of like i don't know which one's better i know for your health and your mental stability detaching them is better um but for the drive and the need to make it succeed maybe having the two be so intertwined is important Um, I think it's why there's so much cult of personality around founders, especially successful ones, is because they are so – you can't think of Tesla without Elon Musk. You can't think of SpaceX without Elon Musk because they are sort of one and the same thing because his existence willed them into being in such a way that they are tied together so much. And would they be there if he was able to separate the two? I don't know. Um, Right, right, right. But the the really great part about Shark Tank was then we left a good impression. And three years later, Robert Herjavec was getting married and he called me out of the blue and said, John, do my wedding flowers. And in the process of doing that, we saved him a bunch of money and he got intrigued and ended up investing in the company anyway. So the reason Look
0: at that. we were on that 2020
1: special cool. was we were the only company cool. that ever got a deal from a shark outside of the tank that was introduced to them in the tank.
0: That's really cool. Um, People will be mad at me if I don't ask you a little bit about marketing in the last few minutes here. So for those people who are going to try to start their pie shop on Main Street or their pottery store or a yoga class, can you just give us like back of the napkin? What would you say? Like, dude, here's what I would focus on. Would you say an opt-in, go to local shops and do some outreach and partner and get affiliates going? What is something that is really a must? And it's something that we can do as a next step when marketing and getting things growing.
1: Yeah, um, so I think there's a there's a couple of buckets, I guess. The first is sort of the just the basics that you have to do to make whatever marketing that you have as efficient as possible. And and depending on what type of business it is, there's, there's just industry best practices that you should have. So I, I know nothing about opening up a yoga shop, but I'm sure that there's ways to look at what others have done and find like, okay, so here's some basic things that you have to have. For us, you know, those things were the basic trappings of e-commerce. You know, you should have a first-time offer that captures an email address. You should have a referral program so people could refer their friends. You should have some basic SEO set up on your website. And you should have an email drip. And so, you know, we could launch without those things, but then every effort that we would do in marketing would be less efficient than, than it would be after those things. So I would learn whatever those things are in your vertical. I think those things probably have something to do with capturing customer data so that you can have a long-term relationship with them and giving them the opportunity to market your business for you and, and sending them to do so. And then from uh, mm-hmm. getting people in perspective, um, your customers become your best marketers, especially at the beginning when you have little. little. So again, that referral program and the story are, are the two most important things because you have to give them a reason to talk about it. If we didn't have the volcano, mm-hmm. people weren't t- going to talk about us. And so when, and the cool part about it was we would show pictures of the volcano on the website, we would talk about it in the copy. And then when the package arrived, it had this, you know, customs import stamp from Ecuador and it brought, all of a sudden people realized like, oh, that's not a marketing gimmick. That's real. And we would send pictures of my co-founder on that volcano. And we'd, you know, put a a scaled back picture where the volcano is far in the distance. We'd put a little arrow saying like, there's JP, he's right there on the side of the mountain. And it's It's really really sort of bring it to life in a way, that story becomes a huge part of it. And then I think from a, from a channel perspective, I think there's a couple key places I would go, right? You start with the closest relationships that you have, and that would be, you know, friends and family. And, you know, I did direct outreach to all those folks and sent one-on-one emails not mass emails mass emails are gonna diffusion of responsibility if I get an email that I know it went to 500 other people I'm assuming that the other 499 yeah. are gonna do something and so I'm, I don't have to do anything so I sent yeah, one-on-one emails that's right. where the first half of it was completely personalized and I ended up sending about yes. 1700 emails in, in the first week of, of operations saying you know hey Jim what's up man haven't seen you since business school hope everything's great I see the pictures of your daughter can't believe how much she's grown on Facebook here's my dream. And then the rest of it would be copied and pasted. But the first part was always personalized to really create the, the personal connection and say, here's my dream, please support it. And, and with your closest relationships, you can just ask them to do you a favor, like, right? Hey, spend 40 bucks on my flowers. It's, they're going to be better flowers and you're going to like it. And out of that sort of initial outreach, enough people will start talking about it. And then you just expand from there. Then you sort of go out and you start posting on your Facebook page or LinkedIn page or whatever, Um, You go from your your close personal friends to maybe looser, you know, professional connections. And then from there you go out to, you know, PR, you start reaching out to outlets. And, you know, we got into daily candy, not because I had a PR firm. I didn't have one. I didn't have any money. I just networked my way to an editor. And it turns out like one of my old colleagues had worked there and they knew someone who knew someone who knew an editor. And I just networked my way through and said, Hey, check out our business. We have volcano flowers. They wrote about it the next day. And then, what happens is so when you get cool. those influencers to talk about it, then everyone else feels permission to talk about it. The first one's really hard, but the 500th is really easy because once you have, yes. once you have proof in the market of this is cool to talk about, then people mm-hmm. talk about it. So Daily mm-hmm. Candy, and then I mentioned Oprah, and then we were in Thrillist, and then it sort of just rolled from there. And so PR yeah, is awesome. great. You don't need a PR agency. Everyone because someone's like, oh, PR agencies are so expensive. I don't have $15,000 a month to spend. And it's like PR is just telling the story to someone who can tell it on your behalf. And so as long as you have yeah. reasons so for reach them to out, listen, you're saying, yeah, reach out.
0: reach out to those places and say, here's my story. No, this is a follow-up question to that. What if someone's like, I don't have a volcano? What would be your advice to helping people figure out what that is? What's the question you ask to figure out your volcano? Yeah, everybody
1: does have a volcano for sure. The question is, can you find it? you know, what's the purpose for why you're launching that product in the first place? And how does that manifest itself in the product? I think the the innate properties of whatever product you've created, you need to find that that underlying reason for why you created it and why it needs to exist in the world. You need to dive into that head first. And I think the really yeah, hard moments awesome. are when you do that and you and you know you get it right and the market doesn't react anyway. Because then you actually don't have anything. And even though you're an entrepreneur that has to know you're right, at some point you might have to realize that you're not. And that is the that is yeah. got that's the hardest moment in an entrepreneurial journey is to say, like, you know, we thought this was gonna be right and it's not, and we're either gonna yep. pivot or we're gonna shut it down, we're gonna try something new because it's not there. Exactly. I mean, gosh, in our journey, I've messed up so many things from how to build a team to technology, to marketing tactics, you know, a thesis around the way that this consumer would behave and it's totally wrong to how long things would take and how much money, like we've messed up lots of things and it's it's sort of a testament to the strength of the business and the team that we sort of keep going through those things anyway. But man, next time around, it won't be my first rodeo. I'll know what those things are and I'll know what to try to avoid and what to look out for, you know, in the, in those different phases of the business. So yeah, exactly.
0: And it's all worth it at And it goes point. back to the beginning
1: yeah. conversation we had around grit and, and sort of being obstinate and sort of just plowing through it, which mm-hmm. is, you know, if you've never built a company before, you have no idea what you don't know about building a company. You have some That's amount true. of experience working in whatever companies you worked in before, some of which might be similar to building a company and some which may not be. Working at Disney has almost no overlap whatsoever with running a four-person startup or a 50-person startup. And so Mm -hmm. depending on what your experiences are, you're gonna have different levels of exposure to the types of challenges you're going to have. Um, but it will be, if you haven't done it before, it will be unlike anything else you've ever done and probably will ever do. And that's wherein lies all the value, which is that you're going to get a set of experiences and you're going to make decisions and you're going to have opportunities that you would never have if you hadn't done this thing. And I think it's why it's so awesome. It's also why it's so terrible because you're going to learn really quickly how not great you really are. Mm -hmm. And that's very, it's very humbling. And you have to be sort of comfortable with that in the journey as well. I've gotten way comfortable with, and and maybe too comfortable with the iterative nature of, of a startup, which is try things and fail and try things and fail and try things and fail to the point where I, it just seems like that's just, that's just Wednesday now. Um, it is sort of how you right. operate. Right, um, <laughs> right, right.
0: The right. downside
1: to that is that not everyone is wired that way or has those same number of reps. So you bring somebody brand new in the company who's never worked in a startup before, and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, we we totally screwed that up. Let's keep going. And they're kind of like, wait a second. Like, isn't this a big, bad deal? And it's like, well, it wasn't great. We we didn't want that to be the outcome. But that's Wednesday, and let's move on to Thursday now. And, and so you, you sort of have to get comfortable with that. And I think it's valuable, but like I said, it's also, it's a real roller coaster and it can be painful at at times as well, because you're, you care, you want it to be so successful and you care about that, that success.
0: Yeah. I love how you said that's just Wednesday now. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. Do you want to leave those listening right now with any like piece of advice, like something they can close their laptop when they're done or their phone, turn off the podcast and like to think about or to do.
1: Uh, yeah, a couple of things I would say. I think you know the network is so valuable. I would say grab a hold of it and, and be bold in in your asks of your network and in your and in your attempts to expand it. I, I hear so often about people who the reason why they made it to a certain step was they weren't afraid to reach out to someone, right? So I would say be bold in building your network and be bold in asking for big things if you want to be bold in your in your dreams because you're not going to get there without that. So, and and along those lines, feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's John Tabis, T-A-B-I-S. Any listeners can feel free to ping me. Um,
0: John, that's so nice of you. And
1: and I'm happy to be helpful if I can be. Uh, We all sort of, you know, it's a big tribe and we all help each other get there. So that would be my high level. I would also say buy some flowers from books.com B O U Q S.com.
0: Yeah. Should we do a giveaway?
1: You sure. A of yeah. People follow
0: you on Instagram or something like that.
1: Yeah, we can give away a couple of books for sure. That
0: sounds cool. Um, and they can maybe tag you guys in it.
1: Yes, please do. Uh, at at the Books Co is our is our social uh, handles. If you want to check us out awesome. on Instagram and Twitter.
2: Awesome. Um, and
1: then yeah, check us out and give them the biz. Um, we're on iTunes and and uh, Podcast One. We're we're sort of like Morning Drive Radio meets Startup meets the Love Line, but for business. Oh, I love it. We just sort of wrap and have a good time. So um, I can tell it's so
0: good because you're really sweet and adorable. So thank you for being here. Thank you for all you're doing in the world to inspire people and make farm fresh flowers possible and sustainability in that camp. And um, it was great to have you on.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure.
0: That was such a fun conversation. So like we mentioned, we're doing a giveaway. I'll post the rules on my Instagram. So make sure you're following me there at kathy.heller, follow books at the books co. And you might win free flowers from books. Okay, now time for your wins. Jessica wrote this in our Facebook group. She said, Three weeks ago today, I gave notice to my nine to five employer. I had been wanting to do this for two years. I went through two years of struggling through the daily routine of the nine to five. Each day I felt like a little piece of me was dying away, and I was wasting away my precious life. There were literally days I felt I couldn't go on another second longer. This caused a lot of tension elsewhere in my life and relationships. After much debate, I finally worked up enough nerve to quit my. My job. To my surprise, my supervisor asked if there was anything they could do to keep me on board. Figuring I had nothing to lose, I countered and said I could stay on part time remotely, which is unheard of in my company, and I offered to just do a portion of the work. They actually accepted my offer, giving me a higher hourly pay than my salary, continuing full time benefits, holiday pay, And I never would have thought in a million years, my company would have been willing to do this. So I feel so relieved that I'll be able to bring in a little bit of income until I can fully take charge of where my life's purpose is directing me. Today, I woke up fully energized and ready for what the future holds, a feeling I thought was lost. And I have a hundred percent confidence that I will be able to fulfill my life purpose. Thank you, Kathy and the Don't Keep Your Day Jeff community. Jessica, I'm so happy for you. And I'm so proud of you for having the courage to make that ask and look at what happened. It's awesome to hear that you found a way to make the day job work for you, and it's going to keep you financially stable while you're able to figure out what those next steps look like. Keep us in the loop. We'd love to follow along with your journey. Uh, next win goes to Jolene. She said on Facebook, I've been listening to Kathy's podcast for six months and it's so helpful, giving me the encouragement to keep going. It took me three months, but I finally got my free online class up and running. I didn't let my perfectionist tendencies get in the way. I simply got it done. Now I'm ready to make the next ones and keep improving along the way. I'm also happy to answer any questions about what it's like to use these online teaching platforms." and would like to know if anyone else has experience with them as well. Jolene, that's awesome. I love that you didn't let the perfectionism stop you from getting it done. Screw perfect. Done is so much better than perfect. And yes, you will learn so much just by doing and taking action. You guys, you can check out her course. It's knowwines.teachable.com. That's K-N-O-W, wines.teachable.com. If you guys have a win that you want us to celebrate in these Thursday episodes, if you have a success story and you want us to interview you, you can DM me on Instagram at kathy.heller or post it in our Don't Keep Your Day Job Facebook group. Also, like I said, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave us a rating and a review and share this show with a friend I hope you guys have an awesome weekend. Thank you for listening. I know you have so many things you could be doing with your time. It means the world to me that you choose to spend it here. And I'll talk to you guys on Monday.
2: Maybe I lost some battles and my cage got.